I almost forgot what year it was. Talk Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 330 is recorded live June 8th, 2017. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, and I'm very glad to be back. It's been a, a long three months. Well, we're certainly glad that you're back, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping that, that being back means you've also been able to get underwater a little bit. Well, I've been fortunate to get wet at least three times this week. Oh, that is, that is awesome. And then uh, joining us this week, we also have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? I am doing excellent, Darren. I also want to say, uh, Mac, it is good to have you back on. Uh, been missing you here for a while. I know you've had important things keeping you away, but it's definitely good to have you here. How, how are you doing, Darren? I am doing great. Nice to be uh, on the air and not doing other things, <laughs> i.e. work. Work has been crazy. It's actually been some fun stuff, but it has been really busy. And then also I've been dealing with the, it's that time of year, uh, if you've got older teenage kids where uh, graduation parties are going on constantly. So we're in the, my daughter graduated from high school this last weekend at her graduation ceremony. And then uh, we've got another week this weekend of graduation parties. And then we have her party next weekend. So, uh, but we are to a beautiful stretch of weather. Today was about as good as you can hope to have in Michigan. Uh, you know, high 70s, beautiful, sunny, not too windy. Was was anybody looking on the yeah, lake? Was it, was it, were the waves crazy or? Well, it's been nice that now, finally that summer's here, we are getting some flat water. You know, it seemed that right in the spring, I know that, uh, you know, Bob and I, we, we planned, you know, like four or five dives in a row for big water which had been canceled due to, you know, high waves. Our little boats, we can't, we can't don't want to go out if it's more than three foot, and even three foot, it's kind of a rough ride. But, you know, so we, we canceled many in a row. But we've had a pretty good run now. Um, heck, uh, you know, uh, Rob and I went out last week and did, did some uh, side scanning, and it was totally glass for us out there. We've had a number of really nice flat days out there since. So anyone who can get out, get out, because this is the time to do it. You know, we still have that early season visibility going on, and the weather is starting to kind of moderate a little bit now. And uh, you know, you can hopefully get out there and you know see some wrecks. Yeah, just you, you can't beat this time of year. Uh, like you said, the the visibility in many cases is is pretty good, but it's it's not going to last long. We're going to have some storms here, and before we know mm-hmm. it, uh, the lake's going to start doing its flipping. Well, it kind of seems uh, this latitude that most of the inland lakes seem to you know, flip right around 4th of July weekend, plus or minus. Might be a little bit earlier this year because it was such a mild winter. Never know. Um, I know that I've talked to different folks diving different lakes, and you know, we're already seeing in the inland, inland waterways 
the uh, visibility is reducing. I know like uh, Lake 16 um, dove that last week, and you know it was very poor visibility until you get down below 20 feet. Then it got decent. It was pretty decent because you got below 60 feet. But then uh, I've heard that the gull, which people were diving early in the season, was 40-foot visibility, is uh, you know down about half that now. So you know it's not going to get any better, folks. So uh, if you want to get a little cold, get wet. Well, Mac, I know you were diving uh, nope, Pawpaw Lake. Well, I know Max was diving Pawpaw Lake. How was the visibility out there? Did we lose Mac? Mm, we may have. Yeah, think think we lost Mac. That's too bad because he, he had quite a bit of diving he he'd been doing lately. So. Well, we'll go ahead and jump into uh, Scuba in the News, and maybe he'll be able to, to reconnect. Uh, and we'll, we'll catch up on his, his diving. Uh, this, this first article we have, and it caught my attention, and of course that's exactly what they wanted to do, and it said, will the sport of scuba diving end by 2050? And uh, as, as I read the article, it's less about scuba diving and, and somebody using diving as an opportunity to talk about what they see as a disaster looming with global warming. Um, and uh, they, they tie it in together with the, uh, the reefs, like the Great Barrier Reef, where it's been having a recent bleaching and, and high water temperatures, uh, saying that the ocean's dying. Um, and this author had contacted Patty uh, to talk about their thoughts on uh, some, of the, some of the weather changes. Uh, he, they talked with Dr. Drew Rich, uh, Richardson, president and CEO of Patty Worldwide. He had been with Patty for 30 years, diving since 1971, who said, I've been lucky enough to have dived on all continents, both Arctic and Antarctic polar environments. I love the adventure and exploration diving offers, which is good considering that he's in Patty. Uh, so what they're, what they're doing, what he did is he was trying to get Patty's position on global warming. So, uh, we'll, we won't read the whole article. You'll have it in our show notes if you want to, to dig into it. But I thought maybe we would just review a couple of the questions that they had posed to him. The first one was climate change, ocean warming, acidification, and bleaching events, uh, killing our reefs. Given the pace of the decline, what do you think is the future for the sport? And they, and he responded, unquestionably, there's serious and formidable issues threatening the world's coral reefs. That said, I'm a firm believer in engagement, problem with identification and mitigation. My life philosophies remain optimistic and focused on future hope. In my mind, there's no other option. Hope there's an anchor to the soul, the danger that we lose hope and we feel like there's nothing to be done. In the wake of our 50th anniversary at Patty, we have deepened our commitment to ocean health and conservation. Over 25 million divers across the planet have become aware have become active as a force for good and diving towards a healthier planet, healthier reefs on local, national, and international levels. The Patty organization is committed to being a global force for good. We are passionate about creating a preferred view of the future in healthier environments. So as I look through the rest of this article, uh, they're interviewing with Patty. Um, it seems to be very well-chosen words, and I'm, I guess that's going to be my, my term for political. <laughs> you know, very... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, very safe. I mean, the saying things that you would not disagree with. Well, I don't. I've seen. I, we try to keep politics off the show. So I'm again. I'm choosing my words as well, <laughs> carefully here. But it's known that the uh, the saltwater divers, probably because it's more in their face, they see a lot more of it. Tend to be very much about you know save the planet and global warming is going to is the end of everything here. 
which uh, you know I'm not again. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm not even starting that, that conversation here. But it really seems what the words he's choosing here is that he does not want to have persons of that point upset with him. Would that be uh, yeah? Fair yeah, to I, say? I think that's what, what it is. They, is everybody's aware that there's multiple views on many of these issues and what tends to be smart and this is what i i'd say at both sides is there's things that us as divers can agree on uh whether you think that you know man-made activities are contributing and to what extent but there are certain things where we can visibly see it uh and i'm not talking just about uh items where it appears to be one way or the other but there's uh but where there's solid evidence of you know like it doesn't take uh all, all you need to do is go into the St. Joe River uh you know after they've uh, released from one of the waste treatment plants to see that uh that's not a good day for visibility so there's a lot of common ground that divers can see and then the same thing with trash being thrown in with you know plastic bags in the water uh garbage you know, runoff, over fertilization. Uh, there's so many things that are well, that w- we're able to deal with directly that uh, we we don't seem yeah, to be that, doing anything over, with. And we, and we do see that over fertilization firsthand. You know, most uh, li- most communities that live on the shore of a lake need to get permits to do uh, you know to fertilize their lawns, but people tend to do, kind of do what they want to do, and we see it at the bottom of the lakes. I mean, there's so many of them which you know are just deep in muck because, well, the algae likes those, likes those phosphates too. And between the algae and the bacteria in the lake, it just makes that muck grow like crazy. Right. So, and that's so been my, bit, that's been my gripe is that when we go and we take on some of these issues, I'm not saying that you don't go and work towards them, but you've got to do it at all levels. You just can't pick the biggest level. And then also there's agendas that happen uh, with any of these movements, and it always seems to be that people want to uh, funnel money in into these arguments where uh, it ends up being taken away from somebody and putting it to somebody else. But like like you said, we're not going to go into politics. But uh, well, it's I think it's kind of a gimme. I mean, but as far as what's causing it, maybe open to debate. But you know, there's. Vast sections of the uh, Great Barrier Reef, which are really being damaged by that coral bleaching, yes. and you know whether or not it's man-made problems or whether or not there's something done about it is a whole another episode, which we're not even going to have. You know, right. but uh, right. you know, it's un- un- undoubtedly that you know, undeniable that you know the environment is changing. You know, I mean, the environment is going to change. You know, we've seen that here in the Great Lakes with the introduction of zebra mussels, where the Environment has changed. You know, now the wrecks are, for the most part, coated in zebra mussels, which, you know, now you're not seeing a lot of the intricate carvings and the rigging and things like you used to see. But then you can actually see things because they have taken out so much of the particulate in the water. Now your visibility is, you know, in some areas 100 feet, which you you would never have had that 20 years ago. So, yeah, things are going to change, some for the better, some for the worse. Uh, A lot of it, you got to look at what can we as divers do about it. Uh, there's really not a lot. I, I know there's been a tremendous amount of effort trying to eradicate lionfish, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's really cool. I like how those guys are going after it. We, we've seen the videos of people, you know, figuring out how to use a Glock to go after the, to go after lionfish. Hey, that's cool. <laughs> but is that going to really be population control? 
Uh, probably pretty satis- pretty satisfying. <laughs> but right. uh, is it going to the, the line pitcher? Sad to say, kind of here to stay. So, right. uh, uh, of course, I'm probably pissing off lots of people. You're yelling and screaming, but hey, you're listening too, aren't you? Ha ha. So, yeah, I, I mean, everybody, you do what you can. Uh, you know, many hands make light work, and you know, if you like, every time you go in the water, you pick up some trash. Uh, eventually, over time, uh, maybe we'll make it better. And, and education's a big thing. If you show people what happens when they throw something away and even if you don't intend it to make it into the water that's you know all storm sewers eventually lead to a river or ocean well you know and we see it out there on the water quite a bit you know there's a lot of festivals and things and our those myler balloons get blown all over creation and they often come down the lake well when that myler breaks down now it's got a bunch of little shiny pieces floating down into the water and everyone knows that fish really like to eat those you know a, a good way to jig for fish is something shiny and fish eat that stuff. And, well, eating a bunch of plastic is not good for them, especially when, when they're smaller fish. And you have an awful, uh, it, 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 it brings up the mortality of a lot of your smaller you know, bait fish, which then, of course, affects the whole food chain. So when you see those mylar balloons out there, pluck them out. So, oh, oh, yeah, but you can't recycle helium. I don't, people think about putting the helium in your tanks. Different kind of helium, don't even go there. So, yeah, but anyway. What do you mean? I just, I don't even buy helium. I just make my own Trimix. I take a couple balloons down with me. Uh, well. <laughs> it's been, it's it, been it, nice it, knowing me, there. hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the uh, balloon grade of helium is one of the grades which you steer away from when making Trimix. So uh, thank you, Dave Tonman, for my gas blender training there, by the way. But, uh, you know, there are a number of grades of helium out there on the market, and you do not use balloon grade for your trimix. Of course, anyone who's making their own trimix should know that. And if you don't, well, you know, Max always find the same darling taking out the dump, you know. So there you have it. And I second that again. Ah. <laughs> Welcome we, back, Max. We hear him. Ah. Yeah, it looks like Windows 10 is fighting that program there. It's yeah, the second well, time it's said after a few minutes i'm going to kick you off yeah if it happened well, again i'm not going to come back but we'll do that for next time well maybe what we need to do mac is uh sometime during the week i'll come over and see if there's new drivers because for mine there's a new driver so i i have an idea i mean, in one way it makes me feel better that you're having the same problem i am because i've been fighting this thing for a while so uh and that's and that, that microphone you've got there is, is tended to be a little bit more reliable well, I like the setup. This is really odd that it basically kicked me off because it didn't like the program. Yeah, it's it's well, it, without getting too too super technical, uh, there's there's something there in, in Windows that is not liking audio microphone drivers. And uh, this next article out of Singapore is Singapore is modifying their commercial diving code. Um. The move is to rein in firms who are hiring recreational scuba divers to do work that may be hazardous. Instead of using divers who are certified for commercial diving, some dive companies are taking shortcuts and saving costs by hiring experienced divers, but without the proper qualifications. To close this and other loopholes, the Singapore Standards Code of Practice for Commercial Diving, or the SS-511 Code, will be revised later this year, according to Mr. Abdul Malik, chairman of the Commercial Diving Association for Singapore. The SS-511 code was last revised in 2010, 
the latest revision follows a court case last year where a local diving company was fined $125,000 over the drowning death of one of its staff, a former Indian Navy diver. Mr. Malik told ST that the commercial diving industry is facing a serious problem with companies hiring recreational scuba divers to do underwater engineering or construction work. He estimates that only half of the 200 commercial divers here are trained to meet the SS-511 code. The rest hold recreational scuba or military diving certifications, which are not meant for underwater work. This is even though it has been more than a decade since national standards are set. Mr. Malik, whose association has been championing the proper training and certification, explained firms are reluctant to meet the standards due to the higher cost of specialized training and equipment. A lot of people in the industry still think the code is a guideline, not a regulation, due to not recognize as a minimum standard for diving work. In January last year, QTech Marine Services was fined $125,000 for breaching the Workplace Safety and Health Act over the May 2, 2012 drowning of a diver. The company had not provided two-way communication to a man who had been sent to clean the hull of a crude oil tanker. The diver is also using only scuba equipment instead of the required surface supply diving equipment, SSDE, for the type of underwater job when he died. The case was significant as the first time the code of practice was brought up in court, and Mr. Darren Burton, a group managing director of KB Associates, the only local training provider for inshore commercial divers in Singapore. Mr. Burton is a member of the Ministry of Manpower working group tasked with the SS-511 code, said it takes 42 days to train a commercial diver, but there are three days to train a leisure diver. This speaks volume about why proper training is necessary. Uh, Compared to scuba equipment where divers carry their own air, SSDE allows for unlimited air supply pumped via umbilicals to the tethered diver. Mr. Malik said, I know of no fatalities that involved SSDE, but nearly all commercial diving deaths involved recreational-style scuba. He explained that countries like the United Kingdom and Australia who want to join the trade will pay to enroll in accredited diver training school. But Mr. Malik believes the SS-511 code effectiveness will be limited if diving firms and those who hire them do not pay <clears throat> heed to it. Shipping firms should not be oblivious to what their contractors are doing, and diving companies must also be responsible for workplace and safety to do their stuff. A spokesman said commercial drivers sh- divers should meet the standard supply stipulated by the Workplace Safety and Health Council in consultation with CDAS, the spokesman said all commercial divers should have competencies, uh, yeah, contempens- nah, to carry out diving activities. Why can't I talk? Of course, it's nothing new. Uh, now, Max, since you are trained as a commercial diver, uh, what's your take on this? Did we lose Mac again? I think we did. Mm. Crap. No, I'm I'm still here. <laughs> oh, oh, you, you're just I'm, choosing I'm not, sure not the answer. Com- yeah, I'm not sure where they're coming from there. If you look at our part, ours is uh, Code of Federal Regulations 29, Part 1910, and the requirements are pretty stringent. And the issue of hiring substandard, I'm not sure why you would do that. Well, I actually don't know. Mom and pop shops, you want to do the low bidder. Mm -hmm. You want to do the low bidder, so you'll take the less experienced person for some jobs because you can pay them less money. If a corporation or, you know, like a a name brand company hires a tech or a diver, they are not going to be violating the CFRs. They're just not going to happen. The state, my OSHA, uh, and, you know, U.S. OSHA laws will kick their royal butts. 
So it is, it's really about the, the occupational standards that we have in the United States that transfer to, that are applied to diving that these large companies are not going to, uh, take the liability or the chance by using these contractors who are, uh, not up to standards. But isn't Absolutely. This, isn't this overseas though? I mean, some of this being Singapore standard code of practice here. Are these American, American companies subject to I mean, if they were American companies, they'd be subject to our laws. But how are we saying that the Singapore, the Singapore is subject to this SS uh, 511 code? Well, uh, the, the SS 511 code is theirs. That's Singapore's code. So what they're trying to do is there is a uh, their code is allowing what they probably did with with a good intent is uh, somebody loses their keys off the end of a dock. Do you need a commercial diver with tethered air to go look for those? And so I'm guessing, without reading this this uh, code, is that they allowed for these type of exceptions or what would be considered minor work. I mean, do you need surface-applied air to work on a 25-foot fishing boat? Uh, but if you're a like they like a bulk crude oil tanker coming in, and you want, you know, I, I, what are they doing, Mac? They probably are they removing barnacles or or something? I wasn't sure what they were doing on that. But uh, if I were working on a big tanker like that, I'd probably be using surface supplied air myself. Yeah, I, yeah, that would that would make sense. Uh, and you know, and and what it is is they're they're taking is you know you know somebody like me who I may be pretty competent at recreational. I haven't gone through any sort of formal training of what can happen with welding. You know, if I need to do stick welding underwater. What are the risks that can happen? I mean, you've got gas buildups. You've got all these other things. And if you haven't been properly trained in that, you're not going to know what those risks are. Uh, and you, you may not be doing the, the proper planning. And then what it comes down to, uh, according to this article, is that the majority of the time it just is simply uh, not having that extra layer of protection by having that surface-applied air uh, and a two-way calm is, is a large amount of it. It's not to say that they don't have the rules. Maybe they were not enforced on that particular one or they let it slide. It's hard to say because I, you know, I'd like to look at all the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just looking at it that, you know, when you're dealing with the international environment and you've got, you know, different countries involved and who knows who who's, you know, contracting out to which country, it can be pretty hard to have a paper trail to say, you know, okay, everyone, everyone in this outfit is, you know, has to answer to these standards. So, I mean, yes, they should, but, you know, we've seen it with different standards with different countries and, you know, perhaps the, you know, the oil company is hiring, you know, someone in the, in the local country that they're reported in to work. So naturally you have, you're going to have different outfits answering to different standards, which just gives them more loopholes to say, Hey, let's go the cheap way and get the local dive club involved. Yeah. Yeah, the European diving standard is different than the Americans. Actually, the European ones are a little tougher. The majority of schools that teach in the United States allow the divers here to do commercial work. But if you wanted them to go and work in the North Sea, the standard has changed a little bit, and you've got to get a certain certification that you could pick up either through the British Assembly or even the Australian one, because there are different, depending on where you work and what part of the world you're working, the standards are different. Can you, I in the take, U.S., get 
to get certification for those, or do you pretty much need to go to those countries? To no, you you can get the you can get the enhancement, but you that's a little bit additional training. So it's like a, maybe some and some extra time. Yeah. Uh, on, on this article, anytime you tell me you go ahead, I was going to say if I got an ex Navy diver, I find it hard to believe if they're to our standards that that Navy diver was not a qualified individual. And I would agree you know with what I'm you. Saying? Yeah, because the amount of training, at least, like you said, at least if they're doing the the level of training that our Navy divers do, would be quite extensive. But you know, good training if you don't follow it, it didn't do you any good. So if you're not uh, having the, the proper redundancies and planning for your environment, you could run into some issues. Uh, the nice thing about this article from the Straits Time, which is a Singapore uh, website, is they have a table on the side that talks about the different uh, gear to give you some idea of cost. So they say recreational scuba. They said it's not suitable for commercial work. Air capacity, one scuba diving cylinder, which is not necessarily the case, but we'll we'll go with that. They said typically is no voice communication. Equipment costs 2000 10000 per personal equipment only, uh, excluding compressor. Maintenance cost is about $150 per year, which I say would be would be pretty close. Now, uh, you could have doubles or you could have some bailouts if, if you were smart, but that would be that. Then SCUBA, suitable for some types of commercial work. Now, when you say, is that, what do you think they mean when they say S, a CSCUBA? Is that, I'm not uh, sure. I'm not familiar with that acronym. I'm wondering if that means that that would be like a hooker rig. I don't know. So suitable for some types of commercial work up to 30 meters, including underwater expe- inspection, photography, environmental management, scientific diving, aquaculture, air capacity, only s- one scuba diving cylinder with a backup cylinder. I don't, that doesn't, no, I guess not. Wireless communications. Equipment costs six thousand, twenty thousand for personal equipment only, excluding comp- or yeah, excluding compressor. Maintenance costs about four hundred dollars per year. So it still sounds like that. You're, you're, uh, you're talking about a safety diver there. I mean, safety diver, surface supplied air, backup bailout, got communications, umbilical lines, and yeah. you're talking ten, fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. Whenever I think of commercial, I think of oil, gas related industry, mm-hmm. inland or offshore. But I'm doing engineering docks and harbors of heavy work, not like you said, somebody drops up and I go down and take a look for it. Right. You're not going to change a prop off a big boat in scuba. Not, I can't imagine you doing that. I, I, not me. I think, any, I think anybody would be crazy if they tried that. No, around what we're doing here, cleaning hulls, smaller boats, shallow water, I can see it, but you still got to be cognizant of where you're at, what is the potential for a problem, and if you're in an un, you know, if you're in a, an enclosed space, you always, even if you got surface air, you have to have a bailout. Yes. So you, you have to look out, you know, where are you diving? What are the circumstances? And you go with the safe part. Yeah. And then they talk about the, what they call their third level, the SSDE, which they said is suitable for most commercial work up to 30 meters, including underwater engineering construction, uh, unlimited air capacity via the umbilical, the, the backup cylinder. The wired communication, the cost is about $20,000 or more for equipment, umbilical control panel, communications equipment, excluding the compressor. Maintenance is typically about $1,000 a year. So that's what you would say most commercial outfits, like if you're, if you're, do, if you're doing major uh, construction or engineering. Um, 
Yeah, if you look at the European standards, and for example, they you'll see a reference. This does not apply to certain diving operations related to police work, rescue operations, science, archaeology, tunneling, compressed air work, instruction of amateur sport divers. Those don't fall under the commercial aspect. So, you so may, they have a commercial venture, but that's not commercial commercial diving work. Right. Which which is good that they they lay all that out. Uh, Otherwise, I'm sure that uh, lawyers would have found it by now, and there have been all sorts of lawsuits. I'd say that's well. Uh, you've, you've heard of that aspect that if you're going to go over to uh, Canada, for example, just cross oh, over the yes. bridge, and somebody says, "I dropped my uh, watch or my keys," you dive over them since you're diving, and if you do that, you just violated their law because that's a commercial operation. Yeah. Well, we have a friend of the show, and I'm going to try and get him on who is now lo- no longer allowed to enter the U.S. because they found him in violation of a uh, visa passport laws. So he had been coming in the U.S. as as an instructor, and he was teaching uh, diving classes, specifically cave diving and underwater, a, a very well-known and a respected diver. But he didn't have the right paperwork, and uh, when they started tightening up the entry requirements, uh, you know, he, he was truthful in answering any questions they have. And they said, well, you don't have the proper paperwork. Not only allowed, not allowed in this time, you're, you're not going to be allowed in for a long time. So, uh, that'd be nice to, well, I won't say it. I won't call him out, even though he's admitted it. Well, we'll see if we can get him on the show, but that's, that's something to be aware of. And ever since that story talking about people going to Canada and getting baited, uh, has, has made me, I mean, actually it's, it's made me a little apprehensive about, uh, you know, going over and he can't even be a nice guy. Oh, that sea scuba? That's commercial scuba. There, there are applications for that. Oh, that's okay. Like a level one. That's a level one aspect. So that would be for something where it's an, an advantage. It's, it's not, uh, now would that be like I've, I've seen on, like if I'm a, if I'm a, if I have my own boat, like say it's a fishing boat. And I need to go and untangle a prop. Would that be something like that where I, I would still have communications, but maybe I don't have an umbilical running to a compressor on the boat? But that's your boat and your equipment. You do what you want. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. The, the surface supply diving course they provide there in Singapore is under the ISO 29999, no, mm-hmm. 990. And their aspect is to be certified for an SSDE commercial diver. The person must have completed level one sea scuba diver training. Okay, so that's, so that's my like understanding. A sea scuba was a commercial scuba diving. That's one level up from a standard, mm-hmm. and then you go from that. You have to have that as your entry to the commercial diving. Wow. Okay, that, well, that makes sense. I like that. There's some sort of bridge between them. Okay, now this next article we have coming up here. Uh, I just thought it was kind of interesting, and I haven't been pasting anything in the chat room. Uh, gosh, I'm I have, as we go. Oh, okay, good. Cause, uh, yeah, as we go, I, I have. Yeah, because yeah, I'm, I'm actually reading from a Mac with articles preloaded as to not bother the show. Uh, I've learned, but I, I have, I'm not, <laughs> that computer's a different computer. But, uh, a award-winning London animation studio has released Damn, a dark comic animated film that explores what happens with familiar when the familiar is suddenly taken away from us. Directed by 
one of the senior creatives, Milo Taggett. Dam tells the story of a community of scuba divers who find themselves helpless in the face of a rapidly degenerating party. Their narrative speaks to the nature of relationships during times of comfort and stability, how quickly turmoil can ensue when the bubble bursts in a unique style and approach. Dam uses stripped black color palette and enhances a simplified flat design. You know, and they're going into this is some stuff, but basically they're, they're using scuba divers to uh, do social commentary, which I think you can do that anytime you want. Just give a diver some, uh, some uh, beer or rum and you'll get all sorts of social commentary. Isn't that kind of what we're doing here right now? I mean, <laughs> Every week. My, my, minus, the beer, minus the beer or rum. So yeah. sometimes. Well, I, I don't know. I've got, I've got my, uh, my, my rum here. So, but that'll be in the show yeah. notes. It, it's, it's really hard to describe it without you seeing it, but that's, uh, anytime, uh, there's any scuba divers in a cartoon, that, that's gotta be a good cartoon. I don't know. I've heard of a few jokes to scuba divers in it, which weren't the best. <laughs> stick around. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll prove that later in the show. Yeah, stick around. Okay, the next one we have is uh, uh, scuba diver from Northeast is preparing for a daring underwater mission to recover two historic bouncing bombs, like they once featured in World War II film The Dam Busters. Simon Smith from Great Lumley near Chester Le Street in County Durham will be part of a team of divers aimed to raise the Highland bombs from the bottom of the Scottish lock. 11 British subaquatic club divers from all over the country are preparing to recover two of the bombs from lock Striven next month. The project is backed by Mary Stropes Rowe, daughter of late British engineer, Sir uh, Barnes Wallace, who invented the bombs. Mr. Smith said it'll be a great achievement to raise the highball to the surface. It's going to be an interesting dive. And a good week of diving with people who have dived with previously, so it'll be a lot of fun. Sounds like every dive we've got. There are currently no high balls in display to the public, and the aim is to place two of the giant spherical bombs in British museums in time for the 75th anniversary of Dan Buster's raid in 2018. They'll be on show in the Brooklyn's Marine Museum in Surrey and the Havlid Aircraft Museum, formerly known as Mosquito Museum, in Hertfordshire. Mosquito Museum, boy, that's, uh, was that the official name? Highballs were naval and anti-ship versions of the circle shaped up, upkeep bouncing bombs used by the Royal Air Force in the dam busting raid in 1943 designed by Sir Barnes bounced over the water. Archive footage of the highballs being tested at Lock Striven features in the 1955 film Dam Busters as footage of the bomb used by the RAF in the rural valley Germany remained top secret. More than 200 of the bombs, codenamed Highball by the military, were tested in lock striven. They were intended to be used on enemy ships, but never became operational. They lie scattered on the floor of the lock. This is a project right up my street. It should be reasonably straightforward to dive as it's sheltered water in the upper lock. It'll range from shallow 30 to 35 meter dives to some 50 to 60 meter dives requiring significant decompression and mixed gases. It makes it interesting and more challenging. We have a real sense of achievement if we complete the task. I can't wait to get started. The project has received the blessing of Sir Barnes Wallace daughter, Mary Stropes Rowe, who's approaching her 90th birthday this autumn and lives in Morrissey, Birmingham. She said, I think it's absolutely splendid. I'm very happy to lend my support to the project and wish the team the best of luck with the dive. It's a fantastic project and it'll be fitting tribute to my father to have the high balls in a museum. My father loved the water 
and although he didn't scuba dive, I remember once he did bring back a snorkel from a trip to Sicily. It was the first one we'd ever seen. I think we were still alive. We'd be standing side by side telling him all what to do. Well, I'm going to ask a silly question. Uh, these are bombs are bringing back up. <laughs> I mean, aren't they concerned about, you know, ordnance falling off when they change the environment, change the pressure, tampered with? I don't know. I mean, no, you just uh, take a, you take your hammer down there or you tap on them with your dive knife and that should tell you if they're good or not. Yeah, that kind of sounds like a scene out of like, you know, the over runner here. I mean, thank you. Know. <laughs> I'm not, I'm going to pass on that dive. You know? <laughs> Well, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, we all know. Okay, logically, yes, that the bomb's been sitting down there since what, a World War II. Uh, probably, and if it didn't go off, it probably is a dud. Probably is a dud. I kind of probably like it to keep in one piece, you know. So I'm gonna pass. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that they researched these bombs and and maybe none of these were armed. Maybe they were just being used to test different parts of it. Because weren't these the ones where they had uh, kind of like rockets on them so they would like spin and then dance across the water and then uh, the idea is that they could go across the surface of the water and then hit the dams and break them up. So maybe they, uh, they've they they've been able to verify that they're not or they, they've got enough people to understand the trigger mechanisms where maybe they're going down attaching a line to it so there'll be nobody in the water when they come up and they've got teams to disarm it but that that would be a like one of my first oh, yeah. questions and let's, and let's put this bomb on display in a museum you know there's lots of people and all that yeah well, I'm, mean, sh- I'm sure before that happens somebody's got to uh uh sign off on it either that or you give know. everybody a sledgehammer and it's a dollar a hit <laughs> yeah and, and then maybe you do like a 50 50 which whichever whenever it explodes you split half the money with the family yeah yeah I don't know. I, I'm, I'm hoping there's a lot more going on uh, beneath the, you know, behind the scenes as far as uh, you know, deactivating these or, uh, you know, I'm just saying, yeah, let's go bring the bombs up. That's that's cool. You know, I, I was doing a bunch of side scan stuff up to Fort Custer where you know there had been some munitions out there supposedly, and I was being kind of cautious about where I was going out there. I didn't want to, you know, drop my anchor on something and find a. No, <laughs> I was flying through the air, you know, no thanks. Yeah, I, I just so. had this visualization of you throwing the anchor over the back, it explodes, and you kind of like would ride the, the wave into shore. I don't think it would be quite so pretty as that. Oh, but... it, it, yeah, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, this next article is from the Los Angeles Times. Years after covering the BP oil spill, a colorful return to underwater photography. Uh and this is written by Carolyn Cole. Uh, she said, when BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill happened seven years ago, I spent weeks combing the coastline of Louisiana and Mississippi, documenting the disastrous effect it had on fishermen as well as on the environment. I saw pelicans trapped in oil puddles, sea turtles covered with chemical dis- dispersants, and dead dolphins floating in the Gulf of Mexico. Working on the story reminded me how much I love the ocean and how I had wanted the marine biologist bef- wanted to be a marine biologist before becoming a photojournalist. My career had taken me all around the world, covering conflicts, natural disasters, man-made tragedies, but rarely anything related to our oceans. Two thirds of the Earth is covered with water, and I was missing that story until now. Uh, so she goes on and she explained how she renewed her, her certification, invested in underwater camera equipment, began to look below the surface, wanting to bring those stories to light. 
and she goes and talks about it. But I want to say that she was that the and there's there's some beautiful photos was that underwater was looking much better than it had been before. Uh, during my recent trip to Cosmo, Mexico for underwater bi- a photography class, I also learned that many common sunscreen chemicals contain chemicals deadly to marine life, but there are natural sunscreens available like those with zinc oxide, titanium dioxide that are much, much less harmful. So if you're traveling, that's something to be aware of. Uh, many of the resorts when you go down there will will warn you about that and require that you only use certain types of uh, sunscreens if you're going to be uh, swimming out in the water. I don't know what they're, I mean, they, they're definitely not policing you. They don't have a tester and, you know, scraping your arm to make sure that you don't have it in. But uh, they do request that you don't use the zinc oxide or titanium dioxide sunscreens. But some beautiful photos. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've heard that's definitely a no-no in a lot of, on the uh, you know, southern resort areas. It's, yeah, like I know. They, they've, seen, they've seen the damage it's done, so. Yeah. And it was, and it's fairly quick to, uh, to damage. It doesn't take long and they've been able to see that. So like, uh, I think Cozumel, Playa de Carmen, uh, Bonaire, uh, and, and, and really, uh, I haven't heard anything in the Great Lakes where we go on that, but, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, we don't get any sun. <laughs> we don't, we, we don't need sunscreen here. <laughs> we need neoprene. <laughs> I'm yeah, kidding. Ne- we get plenty ne- of sun, sunscreen here. Yeah, neoprene does uh, prevent you from getting sunburn. Yeah. I have not seen not- any sun rays that go through 7 millimeters. If if you do, then uh, the sun rays are the least of your concerns at that point. <laughs> yeah. That, you're, the, you're the, the thing is, cloud somewhere. yeah, you get away from the mushroom cloud or uh, uh, get out of the x-ray machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, one or the other, no doubt. Yeah. And then I've got an... Uh, a video of the week where we had uh, some uh, scuba divers encounter with basking sharks off Mayo. Um, uh, video footage is very clear that they are absolutely loving their experience. Divers from the UDC Scuba Aqua Club are exploring marine life, rich waters around the uh, stags of Broadhaven, a group of jagged rockily islands by Broadhaven Bay, uh, uh, divers in the water at 20 meters finishing up their dive when one of them spotted the distance unmistakable silhouette of a shark. Experienced divers are quickly to identify the looming creature as basking sharks, putting pay to a monetary heart palpitations, allowing them to get their cameras ready for some great photos and film their once-in-a-lifetime experience. So that's what the video is about. Uh, and some very nice uh, shots of uh, sharks. The basking sharks... Swim mouth closed, and divers were able to identify the huge creatures by features of their appearance, which followed by one of the most sought-after underwater experiences. Two basking sharks drew near and circled the divers, allowing them to take some footage. Uh, describing this close encounter, one of the divers said it was towards the end of the dive. We were beginning to come up from 25 meters. At 20 meters, I was facing Dave and saw the head of a basking shark arrive behind him. I started to point at it so Dave would know to turn around. There was two of them. They did a couple loops around us and stayed for a good two minutes. We then went up to our safety stops and, of course, boast about how good our dive was. Without a doubt, the most amazing thing I had ever seen underwater probably in my life. Yeah, and these sharks are coming right up and swimming right alongside them. I mean, it's almost like they're mugging for selfies. Yeah. These are, I mean, are, are these those Cardassian sharks? I don't know, but this one, this one here is definitely photobombing. <laughs> 
I just know the picture of the one diver taken by his buddy. Once he looks at that picture, he's, he's going to be a little bit shaky. That shark looks like he's coming right up his backside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it has nothing to do with the sardine he's stuck in his pouch. <laughs> well, you know, considering that that diver's using looks like a like a 63, it's probably a lady. So, either that or somebody really good on air. They just went down to a 75-foot dive, and that would usually be a gal that would do something like that on a 63. That is or, a small-looking tank, isn't it? Yes, it is. Although they, they do make some 80s that are, you know, some high-pressure 80s that look like that, too, I've seen. But I believe that's going to be a, a 63 by the looks of it. That's an interesting bottom, too, isn't it? Take a look at that. Oh, you're talking about the uh, the tank the base there? Yeah, the tank base. Uh-huh. Interesting looking. Well, this next yeah, article. I don't know. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Oh, go uh, ahead. The, no. the, this next article, we have a little bit of potentially cool scuba gear, and they're talking about a product, and this is probably a modified press release, called the Shorkle. It's a small, lightweight breathing device you can pump up yourself, meaning it's a one-time cost, to be able to swim underwater for 10 minutes at a time or hang a couple of snorkels on your belt and go much longer. The regulator is always on, so the breathe-on-demand system will combine with the built-in pressure gauge tells you how much air is left at any time. The compact breathing device launches today on Kickstarter with pledges starting at $200. You don't have a compressor to recharge. Uh, there's a $200 uh, high-pressure pump available so you can fill it yourself. Hence, the $400 outlay is a one-time cost to enable you to swim underwater for 10 minutes forevermore. If you have a couple of snork, uh, snorkels on your belt, you can much longer adding $200 for each 10 minutes of underwater time, again, at a one-off cost. Uh, it could be one of those things that might be very useful in emergencies, such as dropping a pair of $400 sunglasses in 15 feet of water, spinning long enough underwater to clear a tangled propeller. Uh, I'm thinking that... That's one of those things that sounds much better in theory than in reality. Doesn't that look just like a spare? It it looked exactly like a spare. Uh, and then and then also, if for one thing is you're not you know unless you weigh seventy pounds and you're a free diver, you're not getting ten minutes off that that tank. Would you think? No way, especially deep. No, no, no. I mean, you're talking. You'd have to be ten ten feet, and even so. Just volume wise, I mean, how what's that like a well, that's like a five or a seven or five or seven cubic foot of air in that? Well, and you need a lot of training to to, to be a diver because you still are scuba diving. You're taking pressurized air down there. You know, you, you need to know all about you know uh, you know exhaling as you come up and all the different things to avoid decompression illnesses. You know, yeah, you're, you're not going to go in, into to deco on it. But you certainly could have a lung, a lung overextension injury if you come up too fast with that, with uh, you know lungs full of pressurized air. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't see any kind of a backup regulator. What if that thing fails? Okay, where's your redundancy in this here? Well, you you buy two of them. There's your redundancy. Yeah, well, I I I, I agree. There's it's it's not they're not getting that much on. Yeah, maybe the use case is you're in super crystal clear water. You can see the sunglasses in 15 feet. But you're not good enough to snorkel. Yeah, throw that in, go down. But uh, you're and you're right about the risk. I think they're working on a loophole here where, because of its volume, it's not considered something that you need to uh, be certified for. Plus, I think for scuba diving, it's not the fact of buying the gear; it's the getting your air tanks refilled. I think is the requirement for the certification. Well, and when they're talking about a, a high pressure pump available, you can fill it yourself. 
two hundred dollars. You know, that's not a two hundred dollar pump is not going to get you up to the uh, three thousand psi that we're used to that we're talking about here. Oh, so wow. I don't think this thing is designed for for three thousand psi. And if, it's, if that's not a three thousand psi tank, it's not even carrying six cubic feet in there. Oh, I I didn't think that they were talking about a an automated pump. I was thinking that they were talking like a hand pump, like a booster. If you go to the site, it's a hand pump. Yeah. And you want to see what that fun experience must be like. Take your bicycle pump out and pump up your car tire from flat to full. And when you've been pumping for 30 minutes and you've only got five PSI in there, uh, uh-huh. you're going to rapidly realize that uh, that's not the way to go. So you found it on Kickstarter, Mac? I'm wondering how they're doing as far as their uh, program. Now, I see bad idea all over this thing here. If you, if you don't have the training, you're not a diver. And this is diving. You're breathing, you're breathing compressed air at depth. This is scuba diving. Scuba diving without redundancy, without an octo. Um, it's not like you can grab your buddies. You know, this is part of the guy's mask, it looks like here. Or, I don't know. Uh, no, yeah, you, you probably, you, I, I'd hate to see trying to buddy breathe off of that. <laughs> I think mean, good luck with that one. Yeah. I can't get. What are you going to buddy breathe? What are you going to buddy breathe? You're going to get two breaths to share. Yeah, I'm looking at a Kickstarter, and uh, this is a little bit different one. This one was called Mini Dive, which is a mini scuba tank refilled by a hand pump, Uh, and and they're a little bit more honest. This is uh, it's in euros. I'm assuming it's a European, but they said five to ten minutes fill yourself tank, and this tank looks a little bit bigger than the one they had in in that one. and they raised 64,000 out of the uh, 15,000 euros they needed. This one was from France. So it almost looks like somebody tried to mimic what they had done and started their own. They have a Facebook site. The uh, nicest part about that is they got a good visual. <laughs> no. <laughs> They're doing what every good marketing person does and probably put somebody in a bikini. Yeah. Real skimpy ones. Well, the, those aren't those the best kind. Absolutely. As long as I'm not wearing it. That's not a visual I want. They <laughs> <laughs> give you some brain bleach there for that one. Mm. You know, but I'm not even seeing a pressure gauge on this thing here. Um, I mean, so basically you, you know you're out of air when you're out of air. There you go. That's exactly what you want to find it. Yeah, let's, let's bring back the J-valve. Well, I'm looking at the modification here. you got an adapter, and it has a gauge on the side. Uh, and he's actually filling it from a scuba tank. Yeah, I've gone back to the full article. God, it's it's. I, I'm I'm revising it. I don't even think that's five cubic feet. It looks like three. Well, and they showed this guy down there using a, a squircle to clean the rudder on a yacht. Yeah, that's the if one. You have I'm a yacht. At. The keel can get dirty. And before a race, you need to get underwater and scrub before a few extra knots. Okay, so. He's under. He's under the boat. Okay. He's not even a diver, and he's going into an, an overhead environment. All right. I mean, no, no, no. Buy a hooker rig if you really need that. Get a hooker rig. You'll be much better off if it's if it's attached to a boat. Mm-hmm. And and still, you you've got risk with that. To get some training. Yeah. Well, you've got risk for anything that you do. But these these people they are scuba diving. You know and. Even us as veteran scuba divers, this is giving us pause you know, yes. for, for safety concern. And also, okay, um, 
Well, I guess the guy can. I guess he, I guess he can pressurize his mask there and all that. I'm thinking, how is he going to equalize? But yeah, he can equalize and all that. But it's just no, no. There's there's zero redundancy in this thing. Zero redundancy. In it. I'm going to pass. Yeah. Well, here 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 I'm going. I found a link to the. Uh, I sent you another link also that has oh some really God. interesting pictures, the internals for the pump and everything. Wow, I'm looking at the Kickstarter page. They needed 128,000. Well, they they've raised 128,849 dollars out of the 22,000 dollar goal. Wow. Yeah, you're right. That's ex- exactly a spare error. Other than they filled up with that darn thing that looks like a bicycle pump. Yeah. And, and how much pressure are you are you going to get out of that bicycle pump? Three thousand yeah. pounds. Three thousand psi out of that thing. Huh? Don't know how much volume. Actually, you can do that. Um, in the industry, I've used the hand pumps that we use for calibrating 3,000, 10,000 pound gauges, and I can do that with a hand pump. Uh, you know, it, it costs me a couple of bucks, but I can do that with a hand pump. But again, you're not talking cubic feet. You know, lots of cubic feet. You're gonna, you're gonna die. Better have a really good grip. Yeah, they don't even tell you what the volume is, do they? No, I, I was, that's what I was looking for. But I'm looking at their kit. It's got a nice styrofoam case. It's got two of the bottles, pump, adapter, filler, a mask, and some other stuff. I can't tell what it is. Adapter to fill it up with a scuba tank. I, I was just looking at that. It comes with a free scuba tank refill adapter, which is after the first time you filled a quarter of a tank with the hand pump, you're you're going to get, bribe your buddy to, to loan you a 100 cubic foot tank. Uh, so you can it, cross fill. <laughs> it, it says that that pump, that uh, hand pump, develops thirty five hundred psi, and I bet it gets awful freaking hot too. Well, you you'd have to. I like the case that it, that they've got there. That's a nice case. This is all marketing, people. Yeah, they call it off grid diving. They sell group packs. Wow. Well, it's worked for them. I got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell somebody too. Ah. It's you know it's a nice idea, but get, get some training on it. I mean, what what's the certification for using this thing here? Because you are diving. I don't need no stinking certification. <laughs> <laughs> weren't we were we talking about Darwin earlier? Yeah, yeah. we were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that does it for scuba news. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Eric. We have uh, S. Nelson. We have Mullinex. And it looked like Dave Toneman stopped in for a little bit as well, along with some uh, guests five, six, and seven. So thank you once again. Uh, Eric was is gave us a little bit of feedback on that last article. Said that uh, there is a pressure gauge, which we saw that, but that's we were just talking about redundancies. That there's you know no pressure gauge, uh, not no pressure gauge, but if it failed, you you wouldn't have any idea. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, also like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on a, the air again one more year. If you like hunting, fishing, in the great outdoors, you'll love WRVO Radio. Go to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Scroll down to the bottom, and you can see how you can listen. Uh, we have links to uh, their uh, their page, and you'll be able to figure it out from there. And then, Mac, what's that? The, oh, the Triton. <laughs> the gills. Uh, human gills. We know that, that works. Yeah, if you're going to go and do it, that's what you want to get. You want to get the 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 fantasy human gills. Almost like the well, uh, x-ray sunglasses you could get in the back of uh, all teenage boy magazines, along with sea monkeys. Did anybody not buy a sea monkey back in the day? 
Well, I didn't because I was already buying them, but I called them brine shrimp. <laughs> I had aquarium fish. I, and, I can and, say I didn't buy one. And and uh, brine shrimp are not as easy as you would think. I I would you know being experienced with brine shrimp, I always want to know how people ever got the sea monkeys to to live because maybe they gave them the, uh, the seasoning packets, uh, uh, salt packets to kind of go along with it. Well, let's see how's uh, how's the diving conditions been, Mac? Yeah, we we cut you off earlier uh, when we were starting to, to talk about it. How how's your your dives been these last three you had? Uh, well, I went out to Pawpaw, uh, Forest Beach, try to get the suit to stretch a little bit and check out some of the gear. Visibility was about like what it was last year, and I think a lot of the lack of visibility in Pawpaw was due to the aeration uh, they were putting through uh, Sherwood Bay and l and I think that was carrying over because last year it looked a good bit like um, tannic acid in the water. It was all brown and particulate, and that's what I think that were, they were doing is kicking that up with the aerators. I found out, though, they had cut off the aerators late last year. They're not doing it this year, and it was part of a five-year, four-year project for that one. And all the analysis they've done to date indicates that didn't help one darn bit. The aerators didn't help? Did not help. Oh, and that's disappointing. I went and sort of looked at them. <clears throat> and they were 12-inch ceramic disc on the bottom, varied from 4 feet to 40 feet. The velocity coming out of those wasn't a lot. And I flew over and took some pictures of the 25 different locations, and you barely had a trickle. Uh, Ken and I were diving at uh, Indian Lake, where they were doing this two years ago. And I got some side scans. You swear to God, it's a volcano coming off the bottom. <laughs> And on the surface, it's a, like a freaking whirlpool, and you're saying, wow, let's go down here and look at that. And I'm telling them, nah, let's not do that right now. We don't know what that is. I think the velocities on the ones in Indian Lake and this one are totally, totally different. Has Indian Lake published but, any of their numbers? No. Um, I was Now that I found out the results here were uh, for not after four years, I was trying to find out who did their work so I could look at their analysis at the end of it one of the key items and uh, we know about this one is pawpaw lake is dirt dirty in certain parts where we were looking the other a couple of months ago and uh, kevin came up smell like hydrogen sulfide he could taste it he could feel it on the bottom uh, you've got one hell of a lot of pollutants down there and a lot of that the breakdown the bio breakdown is in that in that silty water down there and that's not just silt. that's you know muck several feet thick and uh, you're going to have to do a little more than the tinkle of air they were putting down there to try to get some of that to combine, oxygenate, and uh, change its its radical state. Now, was the these discs that you said they were putting the air up, were they below the surface or were they just resting on it? No, I no, mean, no. They were at depth be- between 4 feet and 40 feet is where they were at. But uh, but uh, what I'm getting at at the surface, I meant not the surface water at the top. But down the bottom, because you've got where you visibly hit bottom, but you can push your arm down another two or three feet. Was right, these, these were not, no, these were not pushed down because they'd never find them again. <laughs> well, I know, I know at Pawpaw, it's, uh, and the muck is thick enough. I stuck my fin in it and I got to my knee and it was still going. So 
No, it's a mighty soft bottom out there at Pawpaw. Yeah, there, there are certain sections that you're talking in excess of 10 foot down. Mm-hmm. And the funny part about that is they were blaming a lot of the phosphates, but they're also finding the nitrogen content of the sediment is also a huge factor out there they didn't have anticipated before. But Pawpaw's big problem is there are two drains that feed into it. Pawpaw does not have lakes or uh, artesian wells or any of that that's feeding the, the water levels. It's all wetlands that feed into it. And the drains come in up from north from Colfort and feeds into it. And that is a huge source of contaminants, uh, silt and phosphorus and other runoffs. Yeah. And that's another project they're working on that has now exceeded its anticipated cost, which everybody knew it would. Yeah. Well, my thought is that Papa may be so silted and mucked up with nutrients that you may need to experiment and take a section, you know, say take a path 30 foot wide and go out to the middle of the, of a section of it and just vacuum it down to the bottom and treat it like you're treating raw sewage. I almost uh, that think that was, that was one of the, uh, items that I had thought about and that was dredging was actually taking a barge, getting the sediment up, dewater and getting the, the material out. Yeah. I know that in the landing, Smith's landing where that one boat is covered mm-hmm. back in the seventies, there was a skeleton of the boat that's now got at least three feet of sediment over it. Yeah. And, and see, that's what you're, you're really going to have to do. And plus the other thing is if you don't, address the source of that contamination coming into pawpaw, you're not gaining anything because it's just going to silt back up and might, you know, another 50, 60 years, you're going to be right back to where you are now. Absolutely. Kevin, when you, you were, what, when you were down you there, do how deep? This, what are you going to do with deep? all that silt when you bring it up too? Because no one's going to want to put that on fields or anything. So now, now you've brought up all this stuff, which you got to find a home for all this, all this dirt you bring up too. Right. Well, it's what, the same thing when they dredge the uh, St. Joe channels. They had to put that in a special landfill. Well, what some landfills have been doing is they've been using that as uh, as capping dirt. When they cap the landfill at the top, they'll put that on the top because it's not so much that, like, they don't want you to use it in the field because you're going to introduce the contaminants into, uh, into food. But if you seal it off with grass or some sort of ground cover and you're not disturbing it, it's probably fine. So uh, I... I've heard that's a is a potential. I bet it would stink right through the grass. That stuff was so <laughs> rank down there. I mean, I, I that, of all the dives to have a little bit of a leaky mask, I'd gone down there with uh, my camera mask to try to take a few pictures because we're going down to actually we we saw a boat on the bottom with the side scan and went down to take a look at it and yeah, found it right off. But my mask was leaking just a touch, so I could sure smell that down there and you know. We've all smelled hydrogen sulfide. We've seen sometimes even you, kick, you you bump the bottom and bubbles come up out of it so thick down there. And, oh, it stunk, and I was trying not to gag when I was down there. And once I saw the boat, I was out of there. I mean, I, and the boat wasn't what we were looking for. It was just a, a discarded runabout down there. It was a big one, big, uh, oh, like a 20-footer, maybe being better than 20-foot, might have been 25 even. It's a huge, long, skinny runabout. Um which had the bow cut up on, open on it, but you know it stunk. Once I saw that, I, I was out of there. Seventy-five feet deep. Well, better than you than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mac and I were, water. yeah, Mac and I were trading off the dives that day. Mac got to do the the uh, the dock box 
So looked just like a car, though it really did. Oh yeah, it, it, on the side scan, we were debating whether it was a Buick or an Oldsmobile. I mean, we <laughs> we had it picked, you know. But no, it was just a dock box. But the dock box with the lid open on it really mimicked the frame you'd see on around a windshield, and just the the square angler we were getting on from some some of the, the scans. It really looked like it, you know, the square lines of a, you know, one of those mid seventies GM products. Well, it sounds like that might nope. be something to think about when we're mowing the lawn out there. Is maybe have everybody bring a little bit of cash and you you could bet on what the targets are. You know, we'd lose because we've been looking at side scans enough that you can make something down there look like anything you want it to look in your mind. I mean, we've yeah. got so many airplanes, spaceships, uh, you name it. We've seen it down there, and then it really looks like it. Well, you know, and it's it's a it's a big Rorschach ink inkblot test. You know, when you're looking for a boat, everything you see has got a bow. You know, when you're looking for a plane, everything you see has got a wing or a propeller. You know, I mean, it's just your your mind really starts playing tricks on you. You know, it's like you, you hear about how hunters they're out in the woods looking for a deer so much, and they shoot anything that's brown and moves, or even anything that that doesn't move. They think it's a deer. Yeah. It's just because you're so keyed up. Looking for that, yeah. it's almost something primal that's you know telling you, okay, there it is, there it is, there it is. Can I go home yet? No, there it is, there it is, there it is. <laughs> so I don't know. In in Lake Michigan, every target I've ever dove that hasn't been a verified shipwreck has been a stumper tree branch. Mm-hmm. Oh, but they sure will look like it, you know. Uh, you know, I was side scanning out to oh yeah Eagle, Lake, and there was something. Man, it it sure looked like the fuse like a fuselage. And get down there. No, just a great big old beech tree. <laughs> I mean, like, how could that be a fuselage? Well, yeah, this angle maybe, you know, so. Well, Mac, what was your other dive? Uh, it was in the Paulpa River. I had a job for uh, an intake tunnel inspection and cleaning. And then uh third dive was under the clock bridge. Uh, that's in Benton Harbor. And if you look at the old charts, that route existed back in the early 1800s. Back when all that was swamp. Oh. And even though it's a newer bridge, I thought, eh, what the heck, let's look down there. And then uh, a lot of kayakers are down the pawpaw now. So I was looking for, you know, something they might have dumped out of the kayak. That bottom was clean as a whistle. Really? Yes. Was that from the construction, now, maybe? No, no, I meant along to and from. It was, the bottom was clean. Part of it is you've got a lot of good fast current. Oh. And, uh, was semi-soft on the bottom there, up along the lake, the sides. Well, you got a couple of trees down, but out in the middle is where I was at. It was pretty clear. Didn't even see any uh, any crayfish, anything like that, until I got to the sides. Huh, that's and the water's warm. Didn't even need gloves. Yeah, I've, I've heard the people talking about the inland lakes have, have, have warmed up quite a bit already. Well, I didn't use them at in Pawpaw, but I, you could tell it. The uh, thermocline was around 15, 16 feet. But I was taking some pictures. Uh, it's amazing already how a lot of the freshwater clams there have got mussels growing on them, trying to keep the mantles in place. So it's going to start killing our clams out there. Oh. Yeah, so I got a couple of pictures of that to show them. Uh, people are now using lots of tires. I found a pile of eight of them, big, big tires. And they're using them for fish traps or oh. fish shelters, which makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, because the fish will hang around Habitats. the tire. Yeah, yeah, it's a habitat. 
And yeah, there's a couple of fifty-gallon drums out there that we used to not have. There, somebody added that out there. Hmm. Almost I'm makes me wonder if, if they need to come up with a, an officially allowed habitat, just so we don't end up a, with a bunch of junk down there. I don't think that's going to stop them. Well, you figure the biggest one is what they used to do is take Christmas trees, bundle them together, put them on the ice, let them sink down. That's great habitat. Mm-hmm. But at least that's natural, going to break down in 10 years. Yes, that's correct. You yeah. know, these, these these drums and, you know, and pick up the drums we see now are plastic ones. I mean, those things will be down there forever. That's true. This one wasn't, but it, uh, it was a big drum. Mm-hmm. And now that um, I think about it, that was bigger than a 50-gallon drum. Now I got to go back out and eyeball that baby. Yeah, it might have been somebody's old oil tank or something down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing like a good oil tanker. Hmm. Okay, well, it sounds like you had a pretty good diving week, much better than mine. Uh, Kevin, now, did you get out at all this week? Um, yeah, I I took last week off from work and did quite a bit of diving. Uh, Friday, Rob and I went out and dove uh, Bolton's barge. Uh, kind of had some learning experiences out there. Uh, decent dive. I've got some tips on there being something not real far from there. An old map I've got sitting around, and we went out and looked at that a little bit. I was talking to Rodney about it a little bit. Rodney is uh, one of our regulars in the ch- in the uh, chat room. He was on earlier. I don't know. Just uh-huh. did some. It's really nice with Google Earth how you can you know take old information and actually kind of you know actually nail down where it should be and. You know, put a decent search pattern, and Rob and I went out and looked for it, and the weather was great. We had total flat water, so we were just running the, uh, you know, the, the side scan on the surface there. And I don't know, the exact coordinates don't match out, but I'm going to go back out and look, look a little bit more. I don't know, it's possible that the uh, the written instructions, if they were off just by just a few degrees, which they probably were, it would uh, put it off by quite a bit out there. When was the last that time anybody had seen that object you're looking for oh i couldn't tell you i mean but the instructions i had were, were, were from the 1920s oh, tell you that. oh wow okay so we're even talking yeah. pre-loran days you're talking yeah old school i'm days. talking about 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 a distance and a bearing is what i'm talking about yeah. so but you know we, we went out to that distance and the bearing and you know i don't know didn't see anything uh although it's Curious because the depth we were we were given matched up to the foot. So, oh wow! Yeah, we're gonna go take a look again. We'll go take another oh. look. It's interesting, but you know, I don't know. It's a long shot, but you got to look. Yeah, um, that was that was Friday. See Saturday. Um, did some stuff with the uh, DNR buoy team. Uh, I don't, that's something we might be talking about in the in the near future. About uh, here in the Great Lakes. There's a uh, project going on. We have a cooperative project between the, the Coast Guard, the DNR, Lake Carriage Association, and the Michigan Preserves to uh, buoy like 186 shipwrecks around the Great Lakes. And it's there's been criteria put together for what the buoys have to look like, how tall they have to be, reflectors, lights, and in, in, in some areas, uh, criteria as far as you know subsurface and rigging material and all that. And, you know, th- this is coming together. And there's a, you know, currently uh, there are marker buoys on the state of Michigan and the Ironsides. Anyone goes up to dive those things in the, you know, next couple of weeks, you'll, you'll see uh, 
some floating uh, green and pink or maybe red. I think they're hot pink, but it's mostly red jugs out there. Uh, do not moor to those. Those are simply marker buoys for uh, when the DNR boat gets out there to drop some permanent anchors. They want to make sure they don't drop the permanent anchors anywhere on the wreck. The idea is to drop the anchor in an area where the storms are not going to push it in, so it's going to be something down current. And within 50 feet of the wreck, where the divers will be able to moor their boat to the to the buoy and then go down the line, and then there will be a line leading from the buoy at the bottom to the wreck. Oh, that will be nice. Uh, there's supposed to be 186 wrecks around the Great Lakes. So they're going to have this program going on. Um, it's, uh, you know, coming together. It's, uh, we're just kind of working out the bugs in the system right now. I've been trying to talk uh, the president of West Michigan Preserve to being on our show as a guest. That may that may happen in the near future. Okay. Uh, we're kind of looking to see just how it comes together. But, yeah, this will be something for a real boon for the diving in the Great Lakes is having permanent navigational mooring buoys attached to 180, 186 wrecks around the Great Lakes. That's That's the plan. Now, you mentioned the so, state of uh, Michigan. What depth is the state of Michigan? That's a fairly deep wreck, isn't it? Well, I think you're thinking the uh, the Michigan versus the state of Michigan. Oh, okay. The, the Michigan is the one the MSRA found about right. four years ago out of Holland in about 240. Yes. Then maybe 270, I think, even. The, the state of Michigan is uh, much shallower. It's out of Whitehall, 65 feet deep. Good visibility. It's it's actually a really nice dive. Uh, okay, it's, yeah, uh, you, you're it's correct. Actually, I was I was thinking the other one because of the. Uh, I, I was wondering if they were because they're staying within recreational depths for this project. Yep, yep, yep. the The state of Michigan uh, is actually a lot like an Ironsides dive at, with half the depth. So it's it's actually a really nice dive. I've done it once. I wanted to go back. But it's a boat very similar to Ironsides. It's a similar engine structure. Uh, it, it's opened up like the Ironsides has, but it hasn't uh, dissipated and sunken in the sand as much as the Ironsides has. Uh, I'm not sure you see, if you can see propellers there, but you do see, actually, I believe, more woodwork at the state of Michigan than, than you do at the Ironsides. So, you know, it's a pretty cool dive, and the bottom's only 65 feet deep. So it's uh, nice, something you can do even as an open-water diver. Yeah. And does it have as many... Uh... Uh, lines and hooks on it as the uh, iron sides? Not as I recall. No, no, uh, not as I recall. So, but there, but that, that is kind of be, being uh, that is a bit of an issue we're having with these buoy projects is that uh, we go out and we set up the the uh, the marker buoys to tell the DNR where to well where to drop the anchor at, but then the fishermen are out there because the uh, kings and cohos are biting right now, and they, and they they of course. Believe it, these wrecks are all just full of kings, cohos, which, you know, we never see, all we see down there are like burbot and gobies. Right. But, you know, they're, they're gonna, they're gonna mark on those wrecks and they're gonna, you know, all they're doing is, hey, they wanna stick their tackle on those wrecks. More things for us to get hung up on. Yay. Great. So, but that, that was Saturday doing that. Um, Sunday, he went out and dove, uh, what was it, uh, Havana? That wasn't Sunday. That was earlier in the week. That might have been on Thursday, actually. I think I think I talked about that last week. Diving in Havana with Jim and Bob last week. So, um, oh, what we, we were going to dive the Yanabra number five on Sunday. That dive fell apart. So uh, 
Uh, Bob Underhill and I went up and dove the uh, Lake 16. We had the course on that on Sunday, then went up there again on Monday and dove it again too. So that's been that's been my diving. So well, nice. I'm 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 excited about hearing the uh, buoy project come along because we've been hearing about that coming on for years and hasn't seemed to be making progress from what we could see. But uh, well, it's 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 coming along. Uh, it's it's actually in its second year. Uh, I don't know we we've got five years where we've got to establish which of these wrecks are going to get buoyed. And like I say that the permit is good for five years. We've got to get the wrecks buoyed within, within this five years. And, you know, it's just like any kind of a, a startup project. You have all kinds of unforeseen obstacles. And that's why right now, for right now, we're just working on only the Ironsides and the state of Michigan um, because they're ones which are not that far offshore and shouldn't, be much of a challenge to get buoyed yeah we're getting surprises as we go on this whole thing so yeah. i mean i there. can i can say what mine are, are the ones that i dive all the time uh that those those would yeah. be on my short list but i uh, part of it's probably got to be the vessels that you have that are going to drop the buoys and stuff uh what makes sense for them what, well, was, the visi- what was the visibility like on the havana and did it look like two wrecks again or is that really just one uh, visibility we had out there was, uh, oh, about eight foot. Uh, actually, I, I have some pictures on my Facebook I post. You can take a look at there, that dive. Uh, the pictures of both Bob and Jim down there. Not the best stuff, but you can make them out. About eight foot. As far as it being two wrecks, uh, you know, it, it kind of depends on who you talk to on that because there are different opinions on that. I mean, from what I've seen down there, it really kind of matches the, uh, there's a drawing on MSRA's page that I guess Valerie did back in the 80s on the Havana. And it kind of matches that, even on the side scans. When you, when, you, when, you, when you get a good scan of it, it's kind of a, an opened-up V with the, uh, you know, the, the V is opening to the north. And that kind of is about what it looks like on, you know, when you're down there, too. You know? So um, I just think a lot of it is just that so much of it was covered up for many, many years that – we just weren't seeing that other chine over there, which has become uncovered just in the last couple of years. But then others disagree with that, you know. So um, I think one wreck. Others say two. I just know that back when it was first found, it was identified there were seven different sections out there. Mm-hmm. And I know for a fact all the stuff we looked at back in the day, 90% of it was covered or is covered now. I mean, the anchor chain, nobody's seen the anchor chain for years and years. So if somebody finds the anchor chain, then it'll be like it was in the old days. Well, you know, we have seen something going off to the uh, to the west there. There's kind of a, a sneaky-looking thing going off to the west, which, you know, the boat did go down at, at anchor, and the wind, you know, predominantly is out of the west. So, you know, it would stand to reason that the, that, that could be the anchor chain. But it's just there's something you do see – on the side scan, going to the west of there, kind of a just a snaky thing going off in the distance. So, when when you dove it before and saw the anchor chain, which direction was it? Was it? I I could not tell you. We we just went down. We're trying to use fifty gallon drums to lift it, but you can never get enough time on it to get things up. If you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And back then it was also deeper. <laughs> okay. Water level is a little higher. Yeah. I mean, not much, a lot. It was like it? 50, it was fifty-five, fifty-six feet. Okay. 
that's about what we're getting down. There's about 55 feet. Um, yeah, but no, it, it was a good dive when we were out there. We had, you know, we had, we had uh, three divers in, three divers out. Um, no one had any problems to speak of. I, I, I dove it wet. You know, I went and made it a nice easy dive on a 72 diving it wet. So had about 30 minutes of bottom time on a 72, and I was happy with that. So nice easy dive. I'll be curious if somebody gets out on Max Rec to see what has changed, and maybe some of that's been uncovered. Yeah, it's been a. Did anybody get on Max Rec last year? Not that I know not, of. Not last year, and the year before, it was just Jim and Dan got out there one time. That was it. Yeah. So who knows? It'd be. Uh, yeah, I. That, that that's that's a wreck I want to get on this year. Mm-hmm. Get on that. Havana's yeah. good for a dive, but uh, not much more than that. And come Sunday, I get to uh, break in a couple of new wreck divers. Oh. Uh, a couple of friends of mine just got certified, and we're heading out to the uh, Rockaway. That will be their first wreck dive. Rockaway's nice little 50-foot depth. has decent visibility out of South Haven there. It's about mm-hmm. now four miles from the pierhead going uh, northwest. So I, I thought the Rockaway was more 65, almost 70 feet. Mm, I don't think it's more than 60. I was just I was just curious. I know the the one I've taken some newbies on is the uh, Muskegon, okay, out of uh, Michigan City. Yep. That's a fun yep. one. A lot of debris, a lot of things to play with. Yeah, but the visibility there tends to be pretty mediocre. I, I've done that a couple of times. I've never had more than five foot biz down there. Uh, have you ever dove the bro- Have you dove the breakwater there? Yes, I have. Yep. We have dove that when we could see from the top to the bottom, and you had three layers of fish. Look just like you were down in the Caribbean. Cool. It's one of those once in a once in a great great while, but a lot of times when you're in the Muskegon, if you can't and you don't have a lot of good viz, make sure you check the breakwater. You yeah. might be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I've only done the uh, Muskegon twice, and both times the visibility was really really bad. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, there's a lot to see there. Uh, the uh, there's a prop there and, you know, lots and lots of machinery. It's, 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 it's a cool dive. It's just, uh, you know, visibility. And from what I've heard, it's, a, it's usually pretty bad down there. But I don't know. I've only done it twice and both times. It was never more than five foot. Yeah, yeah I, I'm looking at uh, the Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve Dive, SWMUP.com, and it has the Rockway listed as being – in about 70 feet of water. Really? Wreckage lies about 70 feet of water. Uh, visibility runs from 10 to 40 feet with soft and silt bottom. There's a good rubble wreck with enough to see for a two-tank dive if you take the time to look in around the timbers for dead eyes and hardware. There's some fishing mm-hmm. line and a tagline suggested to navigate to help you find your way back up the line. Wreckage usually marked by Memorial Day to Labor Day. All right. And, well, yeah, uh, I'm at... I'm- I'm an MSRA's page right now that also says 70 feet. I don't. Know, I if it is 70 feet deep, and I guess well, the, the, these two they actually they're they're now we certified, so they actually are certified for 130 feet. But I know they're not ready for 130 feet. Uh, Going to have a couple of you know I, I'm bringing Rob's going out there too. I'm going out there, so each of the new people is going to have a very experienced buddy to be with, and we're not going to take them any deeper than than, than they want to go. Um, nice thing is though the, the visibility there. I've never seen it less than 15 feet, and I've had it close to 40 feet there. So even if they only go to, you know, 50 feet deep, odds are that they're, they're, they're going to see quite a bit still, you know, from yeah. that height. Yeah, so. I, I usually have pretty good visibility in Rockaway. I uh, usually 
twice to three times better than Havana. Yeah. Well, I was just talking about Havana because uh, I know Jim and I did some side scanning up there looking for the pieces that Mac was talking about missing out there. And it looks like to the uh, southeast of there, there's a lot of clay bumps over there. And, you know, when you get that westerly wind blowing the top water in, well, the bottom water is going to come out, and that's just going to drag all, you know, drag all that dust and crap off those clay, those uh, clay lumps and bumps to the, uh, like say, the southeast of there. I think that's why we have such a rotten disability there usually. Uh, I'm betting if you have, my guess is if you have an offshore wind there, you probably have decent visibility. Um, it's just when we have an offshore wind, then that often means you know pretty flat water quite a ways out, and we often go out to wrecks a lot deeper than Rockaway when we have an offshore wind. So right. I recommend it in Havana. So maybe we ought to make a point of going to Havana when the uh, wind is out of the east. So so we should go in the Havana when the wind comes out of the east. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Okay. Yeah. Well, cause when, when the wind is out of the east, then now it's, it's blowing that, uh, that top water out and bringing in the bottom water from deep, okay? Because you get that, that convection current going on. Well, whenever, whenever water goes out, something has to come in to replace it. Yeah, that so, makes sense. If we get an easterly wind, and you know that's why uh, they have such marvelous visibility on the wrecks there out of Milwaukee, is because the, the, the prevailing winds are out of the out of the west, which now you're blowing the top water out, and and which is bringing in the cold deep water. Now, if you do dive out of Milwaukee, be prepared because the water there is markedly colder than the same latitude over here. I was shocked in September. To find at 60 feet, the water was 40 degrees. <laughs> it really was 40 degrees at 60 feet. I should have brought some more more thermals from my dry suit that day. So be prepared. You go to Milwaukee. It's going to be cold down there, but the visibility is hard to beat. I mean, yeah. it, you know, in September we still had uh, you know 50 foot visit at, on the 60 foot wreck. We dove the there's a pretty cool barge out there, and then we dove the Prince Willie, and I think we had about I don't know, 75-foot viz in September on that wreck. So, hmm. Cool. Yeah. Well, Mac, did you have anything else you wanted to cover? Did you have uh, any safety message? Well, I was, um, I don't know if you guys have covered it while I've been gone, but uh, I was reading this blog, actually, and I, then I found out it was on Facebook. But it, it, it comments on the following. What effects do accidents have? And how do you prevent them? And then because of that, I looked around. There's a Facebook group dedicated to analyzing, discussing, which will hopefully help in minimizing diving accidents. Uh, in this group, they not only discuss accidents, but offer tips and advice on how to prevent them. Uh, they, they talk about simply posting reports of accidents does little to prevent them from happening. But what they do, they need to be analyzed. They need to be um uh, suggesting items of how to avoid similar situations. And they talked about in that vein that they had a number of files with articles and essays contributed by group members who are sharing their knowledge and experience, and people should take advantage of this. They also talked about that they don't necessarily not uh, post or or, um, publish off-topic posts because they figure they're not deleted because one person's idea that you know what is not relevant may indeed be the item to get other you know somebody else thinking about their own diving and allow them to see other issues. 
that we're talking about for that reason censorship in that group is kept to a minimum and in some cases uh sidebar discussions are highly encouraged and welcome uh, looking at the at the site there's several thousand members to this group um and it's all around the world ranging from new open water instructors to uh just plain divers experts in the diving community you know who have decades of experience to contribute they said there are also law enforcement public safety which is EMTs paramedics doctors nurses and individuals who are around the water all the time who just want to pass along their knowledge and information they've gained and their experiences so if you haven't checked out the uh, scuba diving accidents and lessons they teach that's the item just get on Facebook and look for that uh I think give it a look over and I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised and find it to be quite beneficial and more than likely might want to join it. Yeah, it's it's much better to learn from somebody else's mistakes than make them yourself. Sounds good in theory. Doesn't always work that way, though. True, but us, forearmed is forearmed. <laughs> some of us are kind of thick-headed and have to learn from our own mistakes. Well, they say when you get older, you do that. And I, I'm not quite must be at that age that I learn from my previous mistakes sometime. <laughs> yeah, I know one of our regular listeners and commenters, Dave Toneman, is in that in that group quite a bit. Uh, Kevin, did you have anything you wanted to cover? Um, no, I'm, I'm going to pass on the uh, featured record of the week this time. Okay. So, and uh, we thank everybody for listening. Uh, you know, it's it's about half half a year since uh, we've started. We're now approaching June, so uh, certainly appreciate you listening to the program. Uh, you can. F- Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. Our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Uh, search around, find the links to our fan map and you can put a pin in it. Let us know where you're diving from. If you think the show's at least worth a dollar, why not donate to our Patreon account? Three dollars or more will get you early access to our show notes. Uh, again, go to the website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on the ads to Patreon. And that helps us keep everything going. We're slowly uh, adding listeners and adding supporters, and it, it certainly helps uh, cover the expenses of us putting the show on week after week. Uh, let's see, Kevin, do you have anything you wanted to plug? Um, my usual. I want to encourage everyone to support the local dive shop. We always like to get those bargains online, but those bargains online aren't going to fill your scuba tanks. Also, uh, please continue to support your local libraries. Uh, there's a wealth of information there, which you're just not going to find online. Uh, how about you, Mac? you have anything you want to plug? Uh, that Facebook site there on the diving accidents, that's uh, quite an interesting one. I've been looking at that a little bit lately. And then it's, if you're not diving, why not? Get out there and do some diving. Don't be like me and be stuck doing other stuff. Go out there, get some uh, scuba diving in. It's that time of the year. Go to your dive shop. Uh, make sure you've got all your visual inspection stickers lined up, or if you need a hydro, get that out of the way and get under the water. This is that time of the year, at least in the Northern hemisphere In the Southern hemisphere, just grab a plane, fly up for about 16, 18 hours and do some diving with us. Lots to see up here. Lots to see. We, we, we have the best shipwrecks you can see in scuba diving depth. Yep. And, uh, I mean, uh, if if you're on one of those low cholesterol, low salt diets, you won't have to worry. We don't have any salt in our water up here, so you'll be fine. And there's nothing up here that's going to eat you either. So no, uh, maybe nibble a little bit, but nothing that's going to really eat you all out. All right. Although the uh, 
the uh, bass are betting right now. now. I've heard some stories about the bass being a little aggressive towards divers, but uh, <laughs> bass don't have teeth, and they're not going to take pieces along with them. So, yeah, they just gum me to death. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you get a four pounder hit you at twenty miles an hour. You, you're gonna know it. So, I've heard some stories about the bass not being real pleased with divers lately. So, generally, bass are pretty cool and they'll even swim with you. But, well, are you guys ready for that time of the show? Ever ready? Ready as I'm gonna be. Okay. Well, we're we're gonna uh, say these these certainly are bad scuba jokes. A rabbit walks into a bakery and says, "Say, you got any carrot cake?" The baker says, yes, but we're all sold out. Come back tomorrow. The rabbit says, okay, and hops on out. The rabbit comes back tomorrow. Same question. Baker says, I'm sorry. It's the holidays. I just couldn't get to it. Please, I'll give you my word. I'll make the the, the cake out. The rabbit says, okay, and hops on out. The, the baker stays up late, late, real late. It's a holiday, but he gets the cake done. Then a couple hours sleep, he puts the cake aside. Rabbit hops in a day later and says, hey, you got any carrot cake? Baker says, yes, yes, I do. I stayed up late, but it's done. It's it's right over here. The rabbit says, I hate carrot cake. Uh-huh. And then Elmer Fudd comes to the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, but, the, but the baker's like, but I love Halston Pepper. Rabbits yeah. do. Mm-hmm. So on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And have a good time doing it. Recording has been completed. Hey. Well, once we got going, that one didn't go too bad.